welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac Salmonac, and I am recording for you guys actually on a Sunday morning this week. This is Sarah. I am the host of the podcast. And in case you're wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It is not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than a few hundred times. We're here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, let's talk about our disclaimers. First and foremost, we're not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind. Please don't take what we say as medical advice. We're not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Let's jump right in. My first article that I want to talk about today is an article that I found on USA Today, and it's called, Is Marijuana Linked to Psychosis and Schizophrenia? It's contentious, but doctors and feds say yes. Trevor Hughes, Stephanie Eines, and Jamie Donnell originally were involved with this article. Early one morning in March, Madison McIntosh showed up on his day off at the Scottsdale, Arizona driving range and restaurant where he worked. The 24-year-old sat in his car until the place opened and then wandered around all day, alternating between gibberish and talk of suicide as co-workers tried to keep him away from customers. When he was there, 12 hours later, the manager finally contacted his family in Las Vegas who called the police and rallied other family members states away to converge at the young man's side. They found a shell of the once star baseball player. For months, he'd been vaping a potent form of THC, the ingredient in marijuana that makes people feel high and staying up all night long. This young man swung wild between depression and euphoria, the family rushed him to Banner Behavioral Health Center where staff psychiatrists diagnosed him with cannabis use disorder and a psychotic disorder that was unspecified. Doctors expect to make Macintosh's diagnosis official soon. If he remains off pot and symptom-free for a year after the episode, the psychiatrist can say with certainty he suffered from cannabis-induced psychosis. What shocked them is that they'd never heard of this, and his parents had never heard of this either. All you hear about now is the people that are all for the legalization of pot without the risks or consequences that it may create for certain users. A number of physicians and parents are pushing back against the long-held assertion of users and advocates that marijuana is safe, benign, and even a beneficial drug. Those sounding the alarm include the nation's medical health czar, as well as doctors in Colorado, California, and Massachusetts where marijuana is legal for recreational use. These people say the facts are irrefutable. Excessive use of high THC pot and concentrated oil is linked to psychotic episodes that in some people cause them to develop full-blown schizophrenia. There is a great disagreement, though, over the strength of the science linking pot and psychosis. Advocates on either side of the marijuana debate have different interpretations of the connection reported in the National Academics Cannabis Study that was published in 
2017, as well as many other studies. In March, The Lancet, a British medical journal, reported a two to five times higher risk of psychotic disorders for daily consumers of high THC marijuana compared with people who never used the drug. Arguments surround how much of the illnesses preceded or worsened by drug use, how often marijuana use is used in response to it, and whether the psychosis would have occurred anyway. At the end of the day, you cannot make a casual statement, people are saying, that are studying cannabis. Initiative and a member of the National Academics Panel says you need to have some biological premise to show that this kind of exposure can cause a psychotic disorder. The federal government and other health officials say the type of psychosis that Macintosh experienced and other psychiatric disorders are clearly tied to the drug. It's time for Americans to understand there are substantial risks with marijuana, says the Department of Health and Human Services top medical official. This is not the government making up data. They want to make it clear. Experts are pointing out that hospitalizations more than doubled for serious mental health disorders among 18 to 25-year-olds nationally from 2012 to 2018. Researchers are citing a study in July that shows a 77% increase in suicide deaths from 2010 to 2015 among Colorado 10 to 19-year-olds with marijuana in their systems. The data on cannabis-induced psychosis, they say, demands the government both speak out and manage fears. Among people who use marijuana, 10 to 20% will develop a marijuana use disorder and be at risk for other kinds of mental and physical adverse events. That's not the majority. There's a minority of people who use marijuana, but that's the problem. We don't know who they are in advance, and we do not want to exaggerate the risks, experts are saying. Many marijuana users and industry officials say that's precisely what the Trump administration is doing, and they have pointed to other studies, including one by Columbia University professors in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence, that showed cannabis use disorder dropped significantly across all ages, reporting daily or almost daily cannabis use from 2002 to 2016. Long-time marijuana legalization advocates say millions of Americans are highly skeptical about warnings of the dangers of cannabis use, given it's the most widely used illicit substance in the country. When people claim that smoking a joint will lead to psychosis, many consumers are going to write this off and as a result are going to write off all other warnings usually. Die-hard marijuana advocates strongly push back against news reports that suggest cannabis might have made some one sick, often criticizing coverage as a hearkening back to the days of reefer madness and the 1936 film that purportedly showed drugs dangers. While the Surgeon General includes the link between cannabis and psychosis in his advisory in August on marijuana's effect on the developing brain, he was trashed and threatened on Twitter. Advocates for the legalization of marijuana want research conducted without bias or political motivation. In this area, they say the federal government has little credibility. And that is what has been happening for decades. They say the federal government spread misinformation and exaggerated the risks so, that so much that people just started ignoring all the warnings. 
but experts are saying it's not a difficult decision to include the link between marijuana and psychosis in the Surgeon General's advisory. This has been a settled science, they say. This is something that has been known for many years that there's virtually no attention being paid to it. Clay Whiting deals with a lot of parents and other family members at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego, where he is an emergency room physician. In the past month alone, he said he has had back-to-back ambulances carrying young people experiencing psychosis from tr- after trying marijuana for the first time. Since the drug was legalized in California last year, experts are saying they're seeing people every shift now because of marijuana use, including some experiencing violent vomiting known as hyperemesis. The incidents led to the term scrometing to describe people screaming and vomiting at the same time, which sounds absolutely horrifying. Greater access means great trials by younger people, they are saying. USA Today interviewed a dozen parents whose children suffered psychotic episodes, some of which led to schizophrenia related to marijuana use. Several of the children died by suicide, sadly. Andrew Zorn of Phoenix was 14 when he started smoking marijuana daily in high school, said his mother. He was about 25 and working on his community college degree when he told his mother something was wrong with his brain. He tried to read and study, but his mind seemed to disappear on him, his mother said. Zorn was diagnosed with severe cannabis use disorder, bipolar disorder, and borderline personality disorder with auditory hallucinations, paranoia, and anxiety. In a room full of people, in the midst of a conversation, his eyes would just go somewhere else, they say. He later realized it was marijuana use that was causing this, but from that time on, it just grew and grew to where he was more and more disabled. Zorn ended up taking his own life, and in a suicide note, he wrote, I want to die. My soul is already dead. Marijuana killed my soul and ruined my brain. McIntosh's problems started when his time at Scottsdale Community College ended without being drafted or recruited by a four-year school. Mourning the loss of a 16-year baseball career, the 20-year-old started vaping THC to feel better, but this did not work. A report released in October that analyzed 83 studies found marijuana is not effective for the treatment of depression or other mental illnesses, although I don't know who is saying that it would be a treatment for that, but many physicians say it increases the risk and severity of depression and thus the chances of suicide, which I think any drug or alcohol could probably do that as well. But in any case, in the weeks leading up to Macintosh's hospitalization, his brother and roommate Morgan grew worried and called their father. Macintosh was staying up all night, he reported, and at 6 a.m. was still awake doing weird things. Macintosh doesn't remember that time, but the day in March at the driving range is clear. He felt out of it, delusional, and thought people were following him. He was really scared and did not know where he was at. When Rob Macintosh and his wife Marie arrived at 3 a.m. from their home in Nevada, he said his son seemed possessed. He was seeing double rainbows and insisting, I'm good, dad. 
It was lunacy, he said. After McIntosh was released from the hospital last spring, he said he stopped using marijuana cold turkey. He moved to Texas for a while and sold home security systems before returning to Arizona to do similar work in Phoenix suburbs. He is no longer suicidal or tempted to use marijuana. He says, I know now what I put myself through and my family. I want to help other people in any way I can. In May, more than 40 Massachusetts doctors, psychiatrists, pediatricians, and other public health officials urged the state to add psychiatric risk warnings to marijuana packaging and to prohibit most advertising. The group cited research in The Lancet and found that the use of high THC marijuana increased the risk of first-time psychosis by 50% in Amsterdam. Members said the more potent the drug was, the higher the risk would be. They want to make it clear, though, just as not all tobacco use causes cancer, not all marijuana or THC use causes negative effects. However, the risk is substantially enough to require policies which discourage use. The state's Cannabis Control Commission's rejected most of the health professionals' recommendations, though, and people say it's only THC and THC is harmless. That's the assumption we all have in question, but they don't think this is harmless at all, according to the doctors and health professionals that are out there looking at this trend. They, they noted that growers look to use the highest THC strains and companies make even higher concentrated products, including gummy bears, oils, waxes, and that some of these use up to 90% THC. This is a business-driven framework, not a public health one, they're saying, and this can cause some very very serious questions. The psychotic side effects of marijuana are used to bolster arguments on both sides of the legalization debate. They find common ground in the need for more testing and studies. Because marijuana remains a Schedule I controlled substance, the federal government strictly limits who can conduct research on this. Though Canada and Israel permit far more research access, approvals to study marijuana benefits can take years in the USA where government-grown marijuana is tightly controlled. Tests by marijuana legalization advocates found the federal government's testing supply can be 10 to 15 percent weaker than the cannabis sold in state-licensed dispensaries. In the past 20 years, average pot potency has tripled from 4% THC in 1995 to 12 in 2014, according to federal testing. It's possible to buy marijuana flour that's more than 35% THC now, with concentrates like those vaped by Macintosh containing up to 90% THC, which is very scary. But in order to open up and research, we have to make it possible for that to happen. The DEA announced plans to register more qualified marijuana growers for research programs, but additional legislation might be needed here. More researchers and stricter regulation could improve both the quality and the fact-based promotion of cannabis, people are saying. The information would help legislators become better able to determine if the benefits of legalization outweigh the risk. Many are saying marijuana users are familiar with the possibility that smoking cannabis could cause paranoia, and paranoia in a textbook definition of an episode of psychosis along with hallucinations and a distorted sense of reality. But I think that's why a lot of people choose to take cannabis in the first place is because they like those things. But in any case, people are starting to find problems with some of this, and they need the research to try to figure out 
how safe it really is. So both the the proponents and the and the opponents are saying that cannabis use comes with risks, which is part of the reason why this legalization effort is focused on regulating marijuana like alcohol. And this requires a very delicate balance. The potential harms need to be conveyed, and we need them to be conveyed in a way that is credible and based on evidence. Officials are not really taking a public stance on whether more states should legalize marijuana for medical or recreational uses. In any case, there's a lot of research and fact-finding and stuff going on out there about this particular substance. And I hope that we are able to do it in an unbiased and sort of unpolitically motivated manner so that people can really understand what the risks and benefits are before they use this particular drug, especially if they're first-time users or ones that have the potential for mental health issues. Next article, refined carbohydrates like white bread, pasta, and rice can trigger insomnia. This article came out in Yahoo first, and the author is Alexandra Thompson. Refined carbohydrates can trigger insomnia, researchers now suggest. They found that those with diets that had a higher glycemic index were more likely to struggle to nod off. The glycemic index, or GI, is a measure of how many carbohydrate-rich foods raise blood glucose levels. High GH products like white bread, pasta, or rice cause sugar spikes. And when sugar is raised quickly, your body reacts by releasing insulin. And the resulting drop in blood sugar can lead to the release of hormones like adrenaline or cortisol, which can interfere with sleep, is what authors of these studies are saying. In the UK, insomnia affects about a third of the people. And in the US, 30% of adults struggle to not off with 10% battling chronic insomnia, according to the American Sleep Association. Medical conditions like asthma, back pain, and depression can also be to blame, as well as a shift in work, napping, and certain medications. But when it comes to our diet, alcohol, caffeine, and heavy meals are all recognized triggers for insomnia. Studies have suggested refined carbohydrates can cause insomnia but the results were mixed. With trials being short-lived, it was unclear if refined carbohydrates trigger the condition or those who struggle to nod off ate more sugary foods to get them through the day. To learn more, the scientists analyzed tens of thousands of postmenopausal females who took part in the Women's Health Initiative. Results published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition suggest a higher consumption of refined carbohydrates with a high GI raised the risk of insomnia. Compared to those with a lower intake of carbohydrates, the women who ate the most high GI foods were 11% more likely to suffer from insomnia. Added sugars and processed grains were found to be particularly responsible, while vegetables and whole fruits, not juices, reduced the risk of insomnia. Whole fruits contain sugar, but the fiber in them slows down the rate of absorption to help prevent spikes in blood sugar, doctors say. This suggests the dietary culprit triggering the woman's insomnia was the highly processed foods that contain larger amounts of refined sugars that aren't found naturally in food. Scientists hope their study will help insomniacs overcome the issue without resorting to treatments or medications. Insomnia is often treated with cognitive behavioral therapy or hard medications, but these can be expensive and carry significant side effects. By identifying other factors that lead to insomnia, we may find straightforward and low-cost interventions with fewer potential side effects. Based on the study findings, researchers say they need randomized clinical trials to determine if a dietary intervention 
focused on increasing the consumption of whole foods and complex carbohydrates could be used to prevent insomnia. Although scientists only looked at postmenopausal women, they expect the results to apply to other populations as well. Interesting stuff. This next article that I found is called What's the Deal with Caffeine and Breastfeeding? And it came out on Pure Wow in December of this year. So I have a lot of friends that are either pregnant or about to get pregnant. So I thought this article was appropriate for those who are listening so they could get a little bit more information. But here it goes. You got through nine months of eliminating your favorite things like alcohol, sushi, coffee, and the list goes on and on. And now that your tiny human is finally here, you can't wait to start enjoying them again. Except your friend from book club told you that the secret to getting your baby to sleep through the night is to stay clear of chocolate, soda, tea, and coffee. And your colleague swears that her coffee habit messed with her milk supply. Are these people right? Here are the guidelines for caffeine and breastfeeding once and for all. The good news Moderate caffeine consumption, about two cups of coffee per day, is perfectly safe while nursing, experts say, just as it is while pregnant. That's what the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says. Drinking coffee in moderate amounts, about 200 milligrams of caffeine a day, most likely will not affect your baby. The American Academy of Pediatrics echoes this sentiment and has classed caffeine as a maternal medication usually compatible with breast feeding. While it's true that traces of caffeine can be found in breast milk, the amount that's actually passed along to your baby is typically too small to have any negative effects. That being said, that does not necessarily mean you should start your day with a triple espresso. Here are a few things to keep in mind when it comes to caffeine and nursing. According to experts, newborns and preterm infants are more sensitive to caffeine's effect. Therefore, nursing moms may want to consider lower amounts of caffeine in the first few days after their baby is born or if their infant is preterm. And as far as caffeine affecting your milk supply, the answer is that it will not. But again, there's a caveat, experts say. Lactation counselors explain caffeine from coffee will be absorbed into breast milk. Some babies are more sensitive to caffeine and it can cause fussiness and refusal to nurse. This decrease in breastfeeding can then lead to a decreased milk supply. So use caution. If you notice that your baby seems particularly fussy or restless after you consume caffeine, you might want to cut back for a few weeks to see if it makes a difference. You can also try timing your intake so that you won't interfere with nursing. Caffeine usually peaks in breast milk one to two hours after being ingested. So there you have it. Enjoy your morning cup of joe without fearing. And those who want to take a little bit more during the day, eh, it probably won't be so bad either. And the final article for the day is actually a very sad one. This article came out in The Independent and was written by Matt Drake. And it's titled, Vegan Couple Who Fed Children Only Raw Fruit and Veg Charged with Murder After Baby Dies from Starvation. A vegan couple who fed their children only raw fruits and vegetables has been charged with murder after their son allegedly died of starvation. The Florida couple, Ryan Patrick O'Leary, 30, and Sheila O'Leary, 35, told police they only fed their children a diet of raw fruit and vegetables. On Wednesday, a Lee County grand jury indicted the couple and they are charged with first degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter, child abuse, and two counts of child neglect after their 18-month-old son starved to death, according to authorities. 
According to the Cape Coral Police Department, the child weighed only 17 pounds, which experts say is in line with what a seven-month-old should weigh. That is just so sad. The mother called 911 in September when she noticed her son was not breathing and felt cold. She tried to resuscitate the baby, but he was dead when paramedics arrived. State attorney Amara Fox said the indictment includes three other children who suffer from child abuse and extreme neglect. They are 3, 5, and 11 years old. These children were also allegedly malnourished and one had to have some teeth removed. The prosecutor adds the evidence and crime scene at this case was gut-wrenching. These are images as a mother and state attorney I will not be able to forget. The couple is set to appear on Monday in court and remain in jail at present. They could potentially face the death penalty if they are found guilty. And additionally, in November, the parents were charged with aggravated manslaughter by the charge were upgraded after the grand jury indictment. Ryan O'Leary is the biological father of the three youngest children, and the 11-year-old is now currently in Virginia with its paternal father. This is such a sad case and one that we have covered on the show previously. We can't emphasize it enough, folks. It is extremely important for you to follow a physician's care and doctor's advice with respect to any kind of restricted diets, particularly when it comes to children because they are very vulnerable when they're in that growth and development stages. And while there are many ways to create a vegan or a vegetarian diet that do provide enough nutrients and sustenance for children as they grow, it is very important to make sure that you're doing your research before you follow a restrictive diet like that and to make sure both you and your children are healthy enough to be able to follow something like that as well. In this case, it is just so very sad to see that a child lost its life because of this restrictive restrictive diet. In any case, we're going to wrap the podcast episode up now. This is the point where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We love getting emails from you guys. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We will put that into the show notes as well. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy. Keep it real and always of your very best life. Bye.